Let's hear from the God who loves us so much, who has written in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, these words. I, John, your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and endurance in Christ Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and on account of the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a voice behind me, loud as a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven In my opinion, we are living in very exciting times. Um, a number of studies have referred to our generation as being the exponential generation, and what they mean by that is when you are graphing out growth, you know, it's linear growth initially, but when you're graphing it out, when the plot line starts to go almost straight up, you've got a, an exponential curve, an exponential kind of a graph. And it looks sort of like um, this graph here. Uh, of the world population from the 1300s to uh, the present. Uh, you know, this, this part here, if it had just been that, it would have been more linear, but it, it's, it's a, an exponential curve uh, going up. But whether you're looking at population or you're looking at the uh, speed of computer chips, Moore's Law, or the advance of technology, Kurzweil's law, or you're looking at the incredible growth of the volume of data, of just information that is available to just about anybody, or transportation, or communication, or the world's GDP, they all show a sharp upward curve during our generation. Well, the same is true of evangelism. Now, the upward curve of growth in the last 100 years is amazing, in the last 50 years is astounding, and in the last 10 years is almost unbelievable. But if you talk to the average American Christian who doesn't tend to read a whole lot of what's going on outside of America, our news tends to be very Amerocentric, uh, unless it's where we're meddling in other parts of the world, uh, he tends to be discouraged. He's just so discouraged of how things are getting worse and worse, and the church really is in a mess, and uh, there's not a whole lot of great news. But by the end of this sermon, I hope you are very encouraged, because the evidence really points in the opposite direction. When I was in India, I saw <coughs> entire villages that were 100% Christian, that had been 100% Hindu not more than 20 years ago. It, it is just phenomenal to see the rate of growth, growth amongst the, the Dalits in, in India. Uh, millions are coming to Christ. In parts of Asia, entire tribes are becoming Christian. Sixty years ago, when my parents were uh, uh, first in two tribes in Ethiopia, the church there was a persecuted, tiny minority, uh, very much struggling, and now, 60 years later, we have over 95% of one of those tribes is evangelical Christian, and over 93% of another tribe uh, is evangelical Christian. Uh, it's just uh, grown like crazy. I was talking with an Ethiopian friend uh, who lives over there, and he says, you cannot even walk for a mile without hearing Christian songs on the radio or having people giving you Christian greetings or seeing a Christian store or, or a church or some other kind of an evidence of Christian culture going on. And you're seeing similar growth in other parts of Africa. It is growing like crazy. According to the Pew Forum, the church in Latin America has grown by 877% since 1900. In the last 60 years, the Chinese church has grown from an estimated, well, less than a million, but some of the estimates I've seen are 700,000 Christians, to an estimated 70 million Christians today. I mean, it's just phenomenal to see what God 
has done in China. More Muslims have become Christians in the Middle East in the last decade than in the entire 1,500 years before that combined in the last decade. It's just astounding what God is doing. Now, yeah, we hear about ISIS, and we're hearing some horrible things that are going on over there, enough to make you get depressed, but I want you to be reminded there is even greater stuff that's making the Muslims depressed. I was listening to a, a Muslim cleric who was talking about how many millions of people are coming from Islam to Christianity every year. He was so depressed. We've got to do something about this. So we don't have a lot to be depressed about. Uh, the, the church has been growing like crazy. If you look at the Operation World Map in your outline, you'll see that almost every part of the world, except for Europe, Canada, America, and Japan, is growing faster than the world population or the population of those countries is. And that's what we would expect if we were well into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week we saw that the grammar of the first clause in verse 9 shows that the tribulation, kingdom, and endurance was one package deal that was being shared by John and by his readers in common. Well, that would seem to imply that both John and the readers are not only experiencing the tribulation, it also means that the kingdom of God has started in some sense when John wrote these uh, words. And if we are indeed in the kingdom, what should we expect? Well, if you look at your outlines there, we'll see some things that should be expected. We saw, first of all, last week, that we should expect tribulation and resistance from Satan, at least in the initial stages of the kingdom. I mean, think about it. If you're fighting against Satan and you're making huge inroads against his territory, you can bet your bottom dollar he's going to be fighting back. And that's exactly what Revelation chapter 12 talks about. It talks about Satan being furious because he knows he's losing. He doesn't have much time. And so he is lashing back against Christ's kingdom. Acts 14, verse 22 says of the first century church, it is necessary that through many tribulations we, and who was the we there? It's John and his ears. Through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God. Why was it necessary? Well, it was necessary because that's what God predicted would happen at the beginning stages of the kingdom in Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 9, Isaiah 9, and so many other passages. And so not only is tribulation in the kingdom, at least the beginning stages of the kingdom, compatible, it is absolutely necessary. It is unavoidable. And that's why Paul says it is necessary that through many tribulations we will enter the kingdom of God. When God's kingdom advances, there is always blowback from Satan's kingdom until it is completely conquered. Now, our passage says that we should also expect the need for endurance. Any region of the world that Christianity has a flabby theology and a flabby Christianity it is going to decrease. It's not going to increase. Revelation chapter 2 gives a very interesting phrase there. It, it says that God is quite willing to completely pluck up a church from a region if that church has a bad testimony. Rather than allowing a bad testimony, he'd rather have no testimony in that region. Now, Ephesus, the church, had a lot of good things going on, but he said, unless you repent, unless you wise up, I'm going to pluck up your candlestick. Um, so God's kingdom always calls for dedication and hard work on our part. The dispensational idea that the kingdom is instantly set up by Jesus Christ and the church does absolutely nothing is a false idea of the, the kingdom. When Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom, what did he preach? He preached repentance and dedication and commitment, total commitment to him. He was raising up uh, basically a little Gideon's army from amongst those uh, people, an army that would turn the world upside down. And Christianity is either going forward or it is going backward. There is no neutrality because Satan fights against the church. And it's going backward in Canada, in the United States, and in uh, America 
But in most other parts of the world, it is going forward. Why? Because the church there doesn't have a flabby Christianity. They're willing to face the tribulation of Satan. They're willing to endure in the face of his attacks. They are what Revelation calls overcomers. And overcomers overcome, right? Otherwise, they wouldn't be overcomers. A third thing we should expect if the kingdom is present, is that the word of God is going to go beyond Israel and begin to penetrate into paganism. Now that did not happen uh, when Jesus was here on earth, except for a couple of rare exceptions. During Jesus' ministry, he said that he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew 15, verse 24. That was almost his exclusive focus. He was not yet in the business of penetrating the Gentile world. Instead, he was raising up a Gideon's army of Jewish believers who could do that job. That was evidence that the kingdom was near but had not yet come. But the Old Testament prophesied that once Pentecost happened, everything would change. So why was John in a prison island called Patmos uh, and... uh, Uh, why was he uh, not able to get out of that prison island right away? That's a long ways from Israel. That's under uh, Rome's uh, uh, legal system. Well, verse 9 tells us he was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and on account of the testimony of Jesus Christ. He was a prisoner of Rome. Why? Because he's bringing God's law word into Roman culture, and it was controversial. It was stirring up trouble. And he also wrote the Gospel of John. He, he recorded the testimony or the covenant lawsuit of Jesus Christ, and that was controversial. So the message of the kingdom was causing some conflict. I, I won't say more about that clause because it's not really a new principle. It's just supporting evidence for principle number 12. But from all the Old Testament prophecies, we can expect that once the kingdom starts, tribulation and pushback from other countries of the world will begin to happen. And of course, Revelation 7, verse 9 says, wow, there was pushback uh, in the first century from every nation. Now, what else can we expect if the kingdom has come? Well, Isaiah 9 tells us two more things we can expect. And let me read those two verses to you, very, very familiar ones. For unto us a child is born... Unto us a son is given. You recognize that, right? It's referring to Jesus in the first century. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, with the exception of a small period of time, just before uh, 70 A.D., that's from 62 through 70, and by the way, Isaiah uh, has just finished talking about that in the previous two verses, but with the exception of that short period of time, the kingdom of Jesus was destined to keep growing nonstop. Of the increase of his kingdom and of peace, there would be no end. And both have increased over the last 2,000 years. Now, some people question that. And so we're going to just quickly examine it. Has the extent of Christ's kingdom really gone, grown nonstop? Uh, <clears throat> you know, in our minds, Europe and America, North America, tends to be huge. If you were to draw a map from your memory, my suspicion is your map would fill mostly America, North America, and Europe. But if you look on the maps there, it really doesn't. Uh, So uh, we have this tendency to think, okay, the faith has been going backwards in Europe and in Canada and in uh, America, so what about that? And it's true, the the faith has been decreasing in those regions, but at the precise time it's been fading there, it has been growing astronomically in other parts of the world. And I've already given you some statistics, and you can see by the Operation World map there that most places in the world 
have Christianity growing faster than the population of that region is growing. And the places that are not, the church has become flabby and has lost the theology and the character needed for endurance. By the way, endurance is necessary for your personal sanctification. It is necessary for cultural sanctification. Well, what about the growth of peace? Isaiah 9 promises that peace will also grow nonstop, and since the Hebrew word for peace, which is shalom, means the reversal of everything lost in the fall, we would expect to see at least some incremental improvements of everything. Has that happened? I didn't think so. When I was younger, I just thought, that's ridiculous. Everybody knows things are getting worse and worse, right? But it has, actually. Um, I started the sermon with some illustrations of this, and it's been accelerating in our exponential generation. I'll just give you a few other examples. I've examined the charts of infant mortality uh, worldwide for the last 50 years, 100 years, 500 years, and 1,000 years. There's bazillions of charts out there. And every one of those charts shows constant improvement. Now, of course, our exponential generation has shown the sharpest upward trend of infant health and survival. Has there been improvement in the rights of women over the last 2,000 years? Absolutely, yes. And there's been phenomenal improvement in technology, economic freedom, political freedom, education, per capita wealth, lowering of poverty, medical care, uh, Christian literature being easily printed instead of laboriously written out by hand, global travel, communication around the world, etc., etc., etc. Lorraine Bettner's book, which is probably not the best defense of uh, postmillennialism, but it's got some good stuff in it. His book, Millenni The Millennium, has a chapter called The World Is Getting Better. And I don't know why, but when I embraced a pessimistic theology in the earlier years, I was very offended with that. In fact, I didn't even want to read the book after seeing that chapter title. And I thought, everybody knows it's not getting better. It's getting worse and worse. And it was getting worse during the last days of the Old Covenant leading up to 70 AD. The culture was disintegrating. Even families were disintegrating with spouses turning each other in to the Roman government, to the persecuting Jewish authorities, children turning their parents in. Everything seemed to be disintegrating uh, in those last days. But that was reversed in 70 AD. And his book documents this constant increase of God's shalom worldwide as Christianity has grown worldwide. Were there regions without these things? Yes, yes. Uh, but they were also regions without Christianity, or at least that had a flabby Christianity. But has shalom grown over the last 2,000 years? I would have to say unquestionably yes. One of the meanings for the word shalom is medical health. We looked at that a few weeks ago. And charts showing advancement in medicine show phenomenal growth. This past week, uh, Marianne um, sent me an article on this uh, very subject. It was put out by World Revival Network, and it showed that even in the area of deaths by war, in the six regions of the world, things have been improving. This actually uh, shocked me a little bit, made me do a, a bit more study uh, when I read that, because I've never applied this to war. I've always, you know, looked at some of these um, wars over the last couple hundred years as um, being some of the greatest uh, in the world. But as I did further study, this became borne out. Uh, the article she gave um, made reference to another article I tracked down and read, and this was by Dr. Steven Pinker, Pulitzer Prize-winning author and uh, Harvard professor. And in this Wall Street Journal article, Pinker said this, Believe it or not, the world of the past was much worse. Violence has been in decline for thousands of years, and today we may be living in the most peaceable era in the existence of our species. The decline, to be sure, has not been smooth. It has not brought violence down to zero, and it is not guaranteed to continue. 
but it is a persistent historical development visible on scales from millennia to years. In other words, whether you chart it out by year, chart it out by millennia, you see this downward scale. He, he goes on, he says, This claim, I know, invites skepticism, incredulity, and sometimes anger. There will always be enough violent deaths to fill the evening news, so people's impressions of violence will be disconnected from its actual likelihood. But he sums up the evidence saying violence has been in decline for thousands of years. Now personally, I think the charts would be somewhat skewed if you added abortion into the equation. That is one of the worst holocausts ever. One of the worst uh, forms of violence against humanity. I've not seen any charts that chart abortion into the equation, so I'm not sure what the charts would look like after that. But at least in terms of war, the statistics are telling. And people object, well, what about the war between the states? There was a huge loss of life there. And I've looked at the charts, and yes, there is a blip, but it's a tiny little blip during the war between the states. What about the wars, World War I and II? Again, it's a tiny blip. There's a big blip uh, when you take into consideration Mao Zedong's uh, purges and Stalin's purges, but still, when you're looking at the line, it's still a steady downhill decrease of violence. It really, th this was an eye-opener for me, just looking at those things. So what I did, just to give me a little bit of perspective, was I looked up all of the different times that there were battles in the Old Testament and how many people died in any given battle. It is staggering far, far more died in individual battles back then than tend to die today. I'll just give a few examples. On one day, David killed over 40,000 Syrian horsemen. Doesn't mention how many foot soldiers he killed. Uh, 1 Kings 20, verse 29 mentions 100,000 soldiers being killed in another battle. 2 Kings 19:35 mentions 185,000 killed in one battle. And you can do the math yourself. Just go through some of those things. You see, it is staggering the number of people that died in ancient battles before the time of Christ. Anyway, a World Revival Network article that Marianne uh, sent me looked at poverty, health, life expectancy, and crime worldwide. And the startling conclusion that they came to is, hey, things are not getting worse and worse. It is the exact opposite. I have a series of videos that document astounding changes that have come to even things as mundane as gardening in regions that have become pervasively Christian, like one of them was in Guatemala, where uh, not only do we see some of the other things that I've just listed out, uh, but they had such a phenomenal change in the amount and the size and the health of their produce that scientists actually traveled to this region trying to figure out what happened, what change happened to the soil to account for all of this sudden change. Well, they're not factoring in God's blessing uh, into, into the equation. And this is not what we would expect if the pessimistic views of eschatology were true. But if the kingdom has already come, we would expect some advancement of every area of shalom with the final trajectory of planet Earth looking exactly like chap Revelation chapters 20 through 22. That is where the kingdom is irresistibly heading. And since that final trajectory shows families, tribes, and nations walking in the light of the gospel, you would think that as history progresses, you would see more and more examples of families and clans and tribes and nations becoming Christians. And people might think, okay, got you on that. Nations coming to Christ right now, but just hear me out on this. This is, this is very interesting stuff. Let me start back with the time of Christ. During the first 400 years of church history, 
there were unbelievable advances uh, with incredible persecution uh, where Rome eventually became Christianized, but the impact on people groups was huge. But there was an even greater advancement in the next 400 years as entire barbarian tribes came to Christ and even greater advancement as the Viking tribes came to Christ in the next 400 years and they became the missionaries to advance Christ's kingdom. Uh, and this phenomenon has become more common in the last 500 years and especially the last 50 years and I've been getting reports in the last 10 years that just blow your mind. Now it is spoken of in the mission books as people movements where an entire clan or tribe or other people group will become Christian in a remarkably short period of time. In fact, it's become so common that there are entire books that are puzzling through and analyzing this, uh, this very strange phenomenon. And when you read these books, you suddenly realize, ah, that's what Christ meant when he talked about nations getting baptized. Nations getting baptized. Very, very interesting stuff. Anyway, um, in one such essay, Donald McGavran said, individualistic Westerners cannot without special effort grasp how peoples become Christian. Another missiologist uh, describes this phenomenon. He says, Westerners are mystified by it. Chua Hian says, at times it is difficult for individualistic Westerners to realize that in many face-to-face -face societies, religious decisions are made corporately. How many here have seen the film Peace Child, or at least read the book? Okay, well that's a fabulous book. If you've never read it, it's, it, it really is fun. It's only a 20-minute video. I think you can see it online. Uh, but really, really encouraging. It shows how the Sawi people as a whole came to Christ. Now, I've looked at videos of people who have gone to the Sawi tribe right now. You would not even recognize it. Having seen the original video, and then you see what's going on today, the entire culture is completely transformed. You can't recognize it. Almost like totally different cultures that you are, are, are looking at. In that same country of Irian Jaya, there are many tribes who became Christian and were baptized almost at the same time or within weeks of each other, and they have proved to be genuine conversions. Those are nations getting baptized. Now, you would expect this to happen more and more if we are in the time of the kingdom. There's at least one instance of 100,000 Muslims being won to Christ in a very short period of time in a part of Indonesia. I bet you none of you heard about that. 100,000 Muslims uh, within a span of months who came to Christ. In North Sumatra uh, is the Batak uh, people movement. On the island of Nias, just off the coast of Sumatra, there's a remarkable movement where things moved from zero Christians to 102,000 Christians. And again, we're talking very short spans of time. The Minahasa of Celebes is another movement. Entire tribal movements occurred in the Molucas, Sangi, Palawud Islands. Islands of the Pacific have been largely and unexpectedly discipled suddenly as people movements. That includes the Malas, Madagas, Nagas, Garas, Mahars, Beals, and others. So when you're thinking about the kingdom of God, don't just think about Europe and North America. Be thinking of his global expansion of his kingdom, and you're going to realize, yeah, there are some really cool things that are happening. Galatians 3, verse 8, quotes the often repeated uh, promise, In you, all nations shall be blessed. And that's where Revelation ends, isn't it? So the kingdom has already started when John was writing, and the kingdom ends with shalom written all over it in the last chapters. And we happen to be living in some very exciting exponential growth times within the trajectory of the kingdom. There seems to be an acceleration of this shalom. Now, there's a long ways to go, but it's an acceleration nonetheless. But before I can end, I want to resolve one puzzle 
that has kept people from believing this. There are statements in the New Testament about the kingdom being future, at least future with respect to the people who were speaking. And here is the question, if the kingdom has already come, why is it said to be coming? If the kingdom has already come, why do we pray, Thy kingdom come in the Lord's prayer? If it has already come, why do some verses indicate that the kingdom would be set up after the tribulation? See, if we can solve that dilemma, we might be able to bring factions together. You know, amillennialists uh, tend to focus on the passages that talk about the kingdom having always been here. And the premillennialists tend to focus on the passages that refer to the kingdom as being a future. So let's ask the question, when did the kingdom of Christ start? And like I mentioned, some amillennialists say it never started. They say God's kingdom is eternal. It doesn't start, it doesn't grow, it doesn't end. Well, there's a sense in which they are absolutely right because the, the earth and its fullness have always been the Lord's, right? And he rules over all. He rules over the sun, the moon, the stars. He rules over butterflies and caterpillars and, and uh, all of the, 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 the molecules of this universe. There's nothing in this universe that's not a part of God's kingdom and ruled over by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But as true as that is, we still need to ask, yeah, but if that's true, why do we pray, thy kingdom come? Why do other scriptures talk about the kingdom being near, soon, or at hand? Why does Daniel 2 predict Christ's kingdom in these words? In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Well, that sure sounds to me like something's starting. He will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And in context, it's in the first century. If the kingdom is eternal, why does Revelation 11 verse 15 say that the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of Christ at the seventh trumpet, which is in 70 A.D.? I've given you a chart in your outlines where you can hopefully see a distinction between God's eternal kingdom, which has no start, no growth, and no ending, and the kingdom of redemption that is ruled by Jesus. That's a critical distinction that immediately resolves quite a few scriptures. But even if you understand that distinction, there can still be confusion. When did the kingdom of Jesus start? I mean, there's controversy on that. Uh, there are some scriptures that seem to indicate that the kingdom was present during Christ's earthly ministry. Others seem to indicate that it started at his ascension when he went to sit at the right hand of the Father to sit on his throne. Well, that makes sense. If he's sitting on his throne, the kingdom must start there. And yet there are several scriptures that seem to indicate that the kingdom would start after the tribulation and after the seven-year war. So which is it? Well, let me try to illustrate that they are all true, and I'm going to try to do so by looking at some of the Old Testament um, types and shadows. Let's say that this auditorium here represents three distinct times in Israel's history. Uh, over in this section, you guys represent Israel in captivity in Egypt. And this huge section over here represents the wilderness wanderings, you're all in the wilderness for 40 years, and then this section represents the conquest of Canaan, which took about seven years. So we got a big section here and two little sections, and uh, it's not much more than a generation that is being uh, covered there. And these two aisles represent, uh, that's the Red Sea, this is the Jordan River, you know, where they crossed over into the land. So as I walk across the auditorium, I'm going to mention some of the key events that happened and how they symbolize the kingdom in the new covenant. And then I'll go back over in detail. Now over here, uh, we have Moses, and actually Moses was met by God. The kingdom of heaven invaded on Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, and uh, God showed himself to Moses. Moses becomes the messenger of God to both Egypt and to Israel over here. 
And in the same way, Jesus, he's a type of Jesus, right? Jesus is called the messenger of the covenant. And the kingdom of heaven invades the earth over here in terms of the message of Moses as well as the kingdom miracles that Moses did in much the same way that the kingdom of heaven invaded the earth through the incarnation of Jesus, through his message, and through his miracles. Okay? And um, we, we need to ask, has the kingdom come? We say, yes, it has come. It's come through Jesus being here. But are there aspects of the kingdom that are still missing? And I think we would have to say, yes, they are. there are. It has not fully come. So the message of Jesus is twofold. He gives a, a message that would indicate there is a sense in which the kingdom has come, but there's a sense in which it is yet future. In terms of its present um, having come, Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. But when he sent out his disciples to do the same thing, to do miracles and to cast out demons, he told them to say, not that the kingdom has come upon you, but to say the kingdom of God is near. Why? Because Jesus wasn't with them. He sent them out to do those. And there's other passages which say the kingdom of God is among you. Why? Because Jesus is walking among them. But anyway, back to, back to Egypt over here. Um, Israel was in bondage to Egypt, and Joshua 24, verse 14, says that when the fathers were in Egypt, they worshipped the false gods of Egypt. They were basically pagans. Sorry about it, guys. But you're going to get redeemed, so you can rejoice, right? <laughs> uh, they were being redeemed out of Egypt, and right down the edge of this aisle here is Passover. Passover was a definitive break with Egypt, and the Passover lamb represents who? Who does it represent? represents Jesus, right? Jesus died in their place, and any people that did not have the blood of that lamb put onto the doorposts of their doors, the death angel invaded that home. Why? Because if you don't have the blood of Christ, you're not a part of the family of Christ. You're still in the world. So those people who had the death angel visit them, they saw the message of the kingdom. They saw the power of the kingdom, but they were not yet benefiting from that kingdom, right? So, right down the edge of this aisle is Passover, and that occurred in the month of Nisan, and actually in Exodus it had a different name. It was called Abib. It was only after the exile called, called Nisan. And so on the 14th day of Abib, or the 14th day of Nisan, the Passover lamb uh, and, and the day of Passover was celebrated. By the way, when you're reading in Exodus chapter 12, it makes a big deal about counting the days. Uh, it says that they exited 430 years later, it says, to the very day. So it's counting off days. So you got the 14th of Nisan. Then on the 15th, they leave and they go on a three-day journey to the Red Sea. And they go through the Red Sea on the festival of first fruits the same day that Jesus rose up from the dead. And here's an interesting point. The Exodus was not just a one-day event. It was a three-day event that went from Passover to first fruits. And so it's very interesting that in Luke chapter 9, Jesus refers to his uh, death and his resurrection as an exodus, using exactly the same word that the Septuagint uses to describe the exodus of Moses and Israel out of Egypt. It was an exodus. So has the kingdom come? Yes, it has. In, in, in one sense, it has. Now, on the Mount of Transfiguration, who was Jesus talking to when he was um, talking about his imminent exodus? He was talking to Moses and Elijah, the two most famous people who called people out of the wilderness. So all of you guys are no longer going to be here. You're all going to be called over. And this is the wilderness wanderings. And so they're going on a march over to Mount Sinai. And we're going to say that this pulpit here represents Mount Sinai. Interestingly, Mount Sinai is about 
uh, well, they arrived on day 47, but God comes down on Mount Sinai on day 50. The Spirit of God comes in fire upon Mount Sinai. He gives the law of the kingdom, the spirit of the kingdom, and for the first time, Israel is called a kingdom. Okay, uh, you look up the word kingdom in a concordance and you'll find the first time that it's used to describe Israel, it's describing God having made Israel a kingdom at Mount Sinai. So, uh, 50 days later, what happens 50 days after the festival of first fruits, after they get out of the, the, the Red Sea? It's Pentecost. Okay, so Pentecost, uh, Passover to Pentecost is actually all one big unit that's being counted uh, forward. And if you remember from our Acts 2 series, Pen uh, Sinai pointed forward to Pentecost. So there's the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. There is new prophecies, and these prophets are directing people to the law word of God. And uh, in, in, in Mount Sinai, they... Um, are constituted a new uh, people, and in P Pentecost, they are constituted a new people as well. They're constituted as the remnant uh, of Israel. And by the way, there is a little bit of recapitulation that I put down here, and you'll find this frequently where uh, things get repeated. Uh, you would expect that first fruits would occur one time, and that it would point to the resurrection of Jesus, but actually it occurs several times, and you're going to see recapitulation happening in the book of Revelation. So, for example, the first time that something significant happens on first fruits, it's when Noah's Ark settled on Mount Ararat. The next time is when they got out of the Red Sea. The next time that it happens is when they cross over the Jordan River over here and they're no longer eating manna. The manna stops and they're eating the first fruits of the land. Those all pointed forward to Jesus and interestingly, they're all water related, right? Noah is rescued from the water, Red Sea water, Jordan River water, and the New Testament likens these to baptism. Okay, it's a, a baptism, it's a beginning of new things. There's all kinds of cool things like that that happen. Uh, when you look at the Old Testament, we won't be able to get into that. But in any case, the kingdom finally has a land once they are uh, over the Jordan River over there. They're eating of the first fruits of the land. So, um, I would say, in the fullest sense of the term, it's not until they cross over the Jordan River over here that they are fully constituted a kingdom. Can there be a kingdom without land? Say, well, yeah, you could have a kingdom in exile, but technically a kingdom has always got a territory that it is, that it is uh, covering. There needs to be land. So the kingdom in the fullest sense does not happen until they cross the Jordan River. So I think you can see that at each one of these stages, the kingdom has come, has started in some sense of the term. The message and power of the kingdom started over there. The law of the kingdom and the people of the kingdom are legally constituted over here. And then the land of the kingdom starts over here and it's more and more gradually entered into as they take the conquest now in terms of the kingdom of jesus the first section represents the ministry of jesus the second section and you can just count yourselves all one big section okay the second section represents the 40 years remember you guys were 40 years wandering in the wilderness how many years did uh, it take from the first passover until the war in Israel, 40 years, right? In fact, uh, Christ dies in 33 A.D. The war ended in 73 A.D. It's exactly 40 years. And the war started on Passover Day. Yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of really interesting, cool things that, 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 that happened there. But anyway, over there is Christ's ministry. Over here is the 40 years of the advancement of the kingdom. But there's a lot of persecution that goes on as well. And by the way, just as this is the time when the law came down, this is the period 
uh, at 70 AD uh, when the canon is completely finished. The canon is all closed off by the time that we get to 70 AD, which is right here. So Jordan River in the Old Testament foreshadows 70 AD when God finally enables the church to have the power to establish Christendom uh, where they're actually going to be able to be making families and tribes and nations into Christian nations. Territory itself is going to expand as region after region submits itself to King Jesus. Now what I'm going to do over here is I'm going to push back this wall way beyond the conquest of the land of Canaan and we're going to push it off into the future period and just imagine this is going back nine auditoriums worth that's by the end of uh, the, 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 the time of, Josh, uh, of the judges 360 years is what judges spans okay so we're pushing this off 360 years forward that's nine 40-year periods, nine generations. And uh, during those 360 years, times were tough. In fact, they were so tough that some of the people who lived in those times of the judges might have wondered, man, has the kingdom even come? I mean, humanism seems to be dominating certain regions of Israel. And uh, the kingdom seems to have ups and downs. But we shouldn't think of Israel as being completely dominated. A lot of those judges were actually judges over certain regions of Israel. One or two tribes would get completely dominated by humanism. A judge would come along and rescue it and move it forward. But don't think of it as a universal domination for 40 or 80 years. Uh, think of it as being a more regional thing. And in the same way, over the last 2,000 years, there have been ups and downs of Christianity, really tough times that they have gone through. And there were times where people might have wondered, is God's kingdom even present? If you were part of the Soviet Union or you were part of China before, you might have wondered, is God's kingdom even here? And yet look at how God took it under communism from less than a million to 70 million Christians. Just astounding growth. So the, com the, the church, even under persecution, has been growing uh, nonstop. And so even during the time of the judges, Israel stands as a type of the kingdom. Okay, um, so that's the judges. Now let's go ahead and let's push this wall back even further beyond the judges. We've already added nine auditoriums worth. We're going to add three more. And keep in mind that uh, the first auditorium was preparatory. It's really not until they got over the land of uh, over the Jordan River that they were constituted fully a kingdom. So we're ignoring the first whole uh, auditorium. And we're pushing it forward now to the 12th generation. See, we got Saul, we got David, and we've got uh, Solomon, each of whom were about 40 years in length. And if you look at the reigns of uh, Saul, David, and Solomon, uh, you realize that you cannot think of the kingdom in terms of absolute perfection. And you cannot think of the kingdom as absolute peace until you get to Solomon's reign, which is way down there. It's the 12th auditorium. It's going to take you a while to walk down there. Uh, we can uh, deduce from 1 Kings 6, verse 1, that there were exactly, exactly 12 generations or 12 40-year periods um, from Joshua, his crossing over this Jordan, uh, until the end of Solomon's reign when there was no more united kingdom. No more united kingdom. And by the way, the number 12 is a very significant number. It's the number of, uh, okay, 10 is a number of fullness, so is 1,000. But 12 is even greater completeness, and it comes from the 12 tribes of Israel. But it's completeness of what? It's completeness of the kingdom. And so the 12th generation is where it's complete, and 22 times the word 12 occurs in the book of Revelation. And we won't get into that this morning, but it is, it is a significant one. So David represents the period in history when the last of the opponents of Christianity will themselves become Christian in every area of life, 
and be subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Solomon represents the peace and the prosperity, the shalom, as, as it were, that will exist in every nation. So Solomon actually represents portions of chapters 21 through 22. Not everything in there, because some of what's in there is going beyond history into eternity. Uh, but it, there's a lot of that last period of time that Solomon points to. And since Solomon is the last king who is explicitly called a, a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who represents uh, Christ's kingship uh, uh, symbolically, I take the whole period from Joshua to Solomon, 12 generations, as representing the time from 70 A.D. to the future second coming. So if you keep that picture in your mind, that word picture, I think it's going to help you to resolve and understand a lot of eschatology that you read, both the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And by the way, Revelation is going to appeal to almost every stage of this by way of recapitulation that we have talked about every stage of this this auditorium now i've got some other stuff that's um i'm not going to tell you about this morning i'm just going to put it up on the web and um only the curious will ever know about it um but hopefully i've given you enough that you're at least beginning to get a little bit excited about the fact that you have been sharing with the Apostle John in tribulation, kingdom, and endurance in Christ Jesus. And that phrase, in Christ Jesus, really warrants a sermon all on its own. I don't know if I'm going to give one or if this is going to be the last of the sermons on principles, but it warrants a sermon all on its own because our past, present, and future, all of eschatology, all of history, all of the present needs to be Christocentric. But we are living in exciting times. The gradual growth of the kingdom becomes less and less gradual over time and begins to look like exponential growth as we near the times foreshadowed by the reigns of David and Solomon. However near or however distant those may be, and I'm not going to even try to guess at that, but may we do our part to take planet Earth from chapter 1 to chapter 22. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your kingdom. We thank you for the redemption of Jesus, that he is our Passover lamb, that uh, through uh, his resurrection, we too enter into newness of life and that you are making all things new. And we pray that we would find a thrill of being a part of your kingdom, a thrill in advancing your kingdom, of being warriors who endure, as you called us to in uh, uh, Revelation 1 verse 9. May we as a people not endure by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, grinning and bearing it, or anything humanistic like that, but may we endure because we are filled with your Holy Spirit because uh, we are empowered by the Lord Jesus Christ, because we have the joy and the love that you shed abroad in the hearts of those who love you. And so, Father, I pray that you would increase the faith, increase the love, increase the obedience, increase the understanding that occurs in us. In fact, Father, do so exponentially that we might, uh, the rest of our lives, uh, be testimonies of what your grace uh, can accomplish. May this not just be true of us, but may it be true of us generationally. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.